we continue our, our journey through the, the book of Samuel. Uh, we've, we've been all the way through 1 Samuel, and we're, we're nearing the, the end of 2 Samuel. And so this, this morning we're going to begin uh, in chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere around you in a, a pew back um, or beside you. As always, feel free to take it from your neighbor. Um, they'll be glad to share if you don't have a Bible, and they do. Um, so 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, and, and we'll read uh, a part of chapter 15 in, in just a moment. Uh, but but this, this morning in our, in our passage, we're going to see Absalom's rebellion. Absalom's rebellion. So last week we saw Absalom's rebellion beginning. We, we saw Absalom, who, who if, you're, if you're new with us or are not familiar, that there's a king in Israel named David. He was the promised king, the anointed one who had God's blessing. David sinned greatly, uh, but the Lord forgave his sin and didn't remove him from, from being king, but, but there were consequences, and, and his sin would be played out in his own house. So among his family members would, would be a, a, a discipline um, from the Lord because of David's sin. But, but the Lord didn't remove David. He didn't say, you've lost it. He's gracious. And he, he said, David, your sins are forgiven. You're not going to die. And so Absalom took it upon himself to begin this rebellion, and his, his end goal was to replace his father, to overthrow his father, contrary to God's plan. And so last week at the, at the end of chapter, or actually the first half of chapter 15, Absalom began, what, what the, the term was stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. He was going around and getting favor, getting people to like him and think, yeah, it wouldn't be so bad if he were our king. And so that's what, what started, and we're going to see that played out this morning. Um, in our passage, Absalom's rebellion reaches its height. And at the end of our passage, we're, we're going to go all the way through chapter 17. At the end of chapter 17, the, the stage is going to be set for a battle between David and his son. And so that's what we'll see, Lord willing, next week. But in the events that we're going to see leading up to that battle, in the material that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see Absalom just going all in. He, he's, he's thrown or bust. And so, so he's, he's lobbying and planning and scheming rebellion against not only the king, but also his father. Um, and so, so that's what we're going to look at. So, so let, let's start with the, the outline and how I've broken it down. And so there, there are three sections that, that we'll cover this morning. So first we're going to see David fleeing from Jerusalem. So he's leaving the holy city, and that's going to be um, verses 13 of chapter 15 all the way through verse 14 of chapter 16. And then second, we'll see Absalom entering Jerusalem. So right as David's leaving, Absalom is coming We'll see that in the, the second half of chapter 16. And then finally, all of chapter 17, we see these plans or, or these, 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 yeah, these schemes to kill David. Um, and, and so that's, that's where we'll end off there in chapter 17. So um, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read, I'm just going to read chapter 15, starting in verse 13 through the end of chapter 15 as we begin. So, so follow along, I'm going to start in 2 Samuel chapter, for thir- chapter 15, verse 13. So you can follow along as I read. A messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the 
Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you go also? Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I don't even know where we're going? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry that ark, carry the ark back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and, and they went up, weeping as they went. And was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was, com was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in the time past, now, so now I will be your servant. Then, Hushai, you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahamaz and Ahamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Well, let's, let's pray as we, as we begin. Lord, this morning as we read your word, as we study your word, we, we have many, many different life circumstances and situations and, and, and emotional things going on with, within each one of us. And Lord, only you can address our needs, and you have committed to do so by your word and by your spirit applying your word. And so we pray this morning, spirit, that you would apply this word to our hearts. We all need to be corrected or encouraged or rebuked or trained, and so we pray that by your word and your spirit this morning that you would meet our needs. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we're not going to read the whole thing in case you're, you're worried. We're, we're, we're not going to read this whole thing. I'll, I'll read one more small section in, in a little bit. But, but let's begin here at the, at the first section, this first part, David fleeing from Jerusalem. And so as this, as this picks up, we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 15, 
Once Absalom had been relocated back to Jerusalem, remember, remember David sent him, said, okay, fine, come live in Jerusalem. You're not in my house, but, but give him a house, let him come back. Once he was back, he began plotting his revolt. And he did this by stealing, there it says in verse 6 of chapter 15, stealing the hearts of the men of Israel, which conveys to us how he was going about doing this. He, he was conniving, deceptive. He was, he was stealing their hearts. He was vying for political power in all the wrong ways. And so when we left off last week, Absalom's conspiracy had begun. It began to gain momentum. He started, remember his rebellion at Hebron. He, he had this excuse to get out there, and he had this big feast. And actually, I didn't mention this last week, but, but for his feast, he had, he had invited 200 special guests from Jerusalem who had gone not knowing what they were going to. And what that tells us is that, is that Absalom invites probably 200 of David's special advisors or military leaders, and they're all out of Jerusalem. They don't know what they're doing. They're just going to, to some feast that the king's son is throwing. And so when Absalom begins his rebellion, you have 200 of, of David's um, inner circle or, or part of his, his group, his army, that are gone and unable to help. So Absalom is, is, is scheming and conniving. So with, with them gone, David in Jerusalem, they hear, word, verse 13, Trumpet's been blown, Absalom's been declared king, a messenger comes back to David in Jerusalem, and he says, the hearts of Israel have gone out to Absalom. In other words, we're in big trouble, king. I mean, that, that's the message. That there's people, then they're all flocking to Absalom, and, and we're in trouble. And so David and all of his servants, all the, the loyal subjects there, they flee. They leave Jerusalem. David knows he's king, he's coming. He's coming for Jerusalem. He's coming for me. And the last thing David wants is war in the capital city. Remember, Jerusalem is literally the, the city of peace. This had been established as a, as a peaceful city. And so David says, we're not having war here. I don't want war here. I will leave before I fight and make this a, a city of war. And so he flees the capital city. Now, a significant note that will come up later is that as he leaves, he, he doesn't leave the city totally unattended. He leaves 10 women Ten, ten of his concubines, and, and their sole purpose is to care for the house. Now, it's significant, right, because Absalom will make a political statement with them, okay, they will be used by Absalom, but, but here at, at the outset, as David goes and he leaves them, lest there be any doubt that David didn't want fighting to take place around this, this city, he ordered the women to be in charge of the city. And so the individuals, these women, were excluded from active participation in mil military conflict, Right? They were the ones that David left. So David's saying, I'm, I'm not here to fight. I'm leaving these women to take care of the city, but I'm not here for war. And so he leaves them, and he goes. And as David and the people, they process out of Jerusalem, they, they kind of stop at the last house within the city limits. And so he stops there, and then, then they all, the whole host is passing on. And so one specific group or individual that David takes note of is the Gittites. So this man named Ittai, the, the leader Right? They've come from a place called Gath. And if you've been with us, Gath, that's, that's Philistine territory. And so that means Ittai and all these people with him, they're Philistines. And so David, recognizing, wait a minute, Philistines and Jews in war together, it hasn't gone well. In fact, I've been on the side of the, the Philistines that, that turned, and I've seen lots of, lots of side switching. I don't know if it's best for them to come with us. And so David orders Ittai and his people, go back. Go back and stay with the king. So notice he uses the word king. He's not talking about himself. Some people say maybe he's testing Ittai to say if he, he acknowledges Ittai, or Absalom as the king. Who knows? But he says, go back with the king. Go back. Don't, don't come with us. And to his surprise, this, this Ittai, the Gittite from Gath, 
expresses this, this covenant-like commitment to King David. And so in verse, 20, verse 21, he says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, do you see his allegiance? Wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. I mean, this is Ruth and, and Naomi-type language. Wherever, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God is my God. You're my Lord. And so, so Ittai convinces David, I'm loyal to you, king. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And so David says, all right, go ahead. And so Ittai and all the people from Gath with him pass on. And, and we should just note here that the servants to David are loyal. Right? They're, they're not running scared. They're saying, whatever the king wants to do, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're here for you, king. They're here to follow the king. And so David, as he goes, just so we're aware of the reputation of David among the people, verse 13 says that all the land wept aloud as all the people. So as they're exiting the city, right, the, the, temple, the temple complex is, is abandoned, but there's still some people in Jerusalem. And as, as the king and, his, and all of his loyal subjects pass by, there's weeping and mourning as the king goes. Right? They, they, didn't, they didn't like the fact that the king was on his way out. And so David, once again, officially is on the run. He's no stranger to being on the run, but now as king, he's on the run. And so as they, as they process out and, and they cross the, the brook of Kidron and they head on towards the wilderness, as they go, we're introduced to two important characters. So there in verse 24, we're introduced to Abathar and Zadok. And these are, these are two priests, two men of the Levites who, who have holy occupations. And, and they're seen as they're, as they're making their way out, they're not coming empty-handed. They're actually bringing the Ark of the Covenant with them. Now, this is probably a symbolic gesture making the case that, okay, wherever this king goes, the presence of the Lord is coming because he's the Lord's anointed king. And so I think well-intentioned, Abathar and Zadok say, okay, king, if we're leaving, the Lord's coming with you because you are his king. You're the loyal. You're the, you're the anointed one. But David, notice as he sees them making this removal of the Ark, he says No. He refuses to bring the ark. He refuses. Verse 25, he tells Zadok, take the ark. Take it back into the city. And notice why. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. I'll see it again. I don't have to take it with me. Right? If, the, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, I will see it again. And not only it, I will see his dwell. I'll see the temple, the city. I will come back if the Lord finds, if I find favor. But, verse 26, if he says, again, if the Lord says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good. Leave the ark, right? I'm here. Let him do to me what seems good. This is a posture of trust. I'm not going to try and manipulate things. I'm not going to use the ark as a, as a piece of, of war. Remember that? That's happened when Saul was king. We just bring the ark and we'll win when, when that's not how the ark functions. So, so David says, the Lord established his place in Jerusalem. I'm not taking the ark away. David refuses to take the ark away from the place that the Lord had made his home. And so these two men, Abathar and Zadok, they're, they're going to be very important in the long run. So David sends them back and says, go, go, just go serve in your royal official capacities. And he says, you can just be my informants. You can be my moles, as it were. So, so you go back there. I know that you're loyal. Right? And so, so you go, and as you hear what's, what's happening, as you hear the plans of Absalom as he comes to Jerusalem... Just, just send your sons word what's going to happen. Then your sons can come, and I'll be waiting to hear from them. And so, so there's this whole plan. David wants them to send word through their two sons, Ahamaz and Jonathan, of the plans. Okay, so he's scheming. He's planning. Okay, I, I, I'm fleeing, but I still need to know what Absalom's doing. And so as David ex continues his exodus, he's informed that Ahithophel has switched sides. So we learned earlier in verse 12 that Ahithophel, which is Bathsheba's grandfather, 
Right? So, so he, he has a bone to pick with David, and so he switches sides, and he joins Absalom. And so when David hears that he's part of the conspiracy, David, knowing the wisdom of Ahithophel, immediately recognizing the value of Ahithophel's counsel, first response is to pray. You see that? He says, O Lord, right? this is a prayer, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David knows Ahithophel is a good guy to have on your side, and he's on the up opposite side of David, so he says, Lord, intervene. Intervene. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And um, the, the next thing we're told, immediately following, the next person that we're introduced to turns out to be the Lord's answer to David's prayer. And so he says, Lord, turn, turn the counsel into foolishness. And here comes Hushai. Here comes Hushai, who, who will turn out to be the answer to David's prayer. And so Hushai, Hushai comes out and David says, you're just going to be a burden if you come. We've got to provide for you and all that. You could be much more helpful if you go back. Right? You've been a, a loyal servant of mine. Just go tell Absalom that you're going to be his servant, just like you're my servant. And so Hushai plans to return to Absalom. And, and David's order of spies is now complete. He's got this whole network there. And so all these men are going to be in Jerusalem, able to make David aware of the plans. Well, as it moves forward, we, we come to chapter 16. I'm not going to read it. But as it moves forward, there, there's two more individuals that we're introduced to, Ziba and Shimei. Okay, so, so first we're, we're introduced in verses 1 through 4 to, to a man named Ziba. So if you remember, Ziba was a servant of Saul. Okay, so Saul was the king that was, has been long dead, and Ziba was a servant of his house. And, and earlier in, in this book, Ziba was in charge of Mephibosheth. Right, so if you remember that. So Mephibosheth shows up and brings David a large supply of donkeys and food, just, just provisions for a king who's on the run. This, this is an act of kindness, supporting the king. But David sees Ziba and he says, what's going on? He's a bit skeptical. Why, why would someone of Saul's house come and, and show support for me? And so he's, he questions Ziba. Ziba says, no, 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 I, I, I just brought this for the king and his men. You, you need supplies. Here's, here's some donkeys and here's some food. And then interesting comment, he tells David that Mephibosheth decided not to come. He says, no, because David says, well, where's Mephibosheth? Where's, where's your master? He says, he decided not to come. He stayed in Jerusalem. Why? Because he was saying that today was the day he was going to get back the kingdom of his father. Now, I say it's interesting because, so here's Ziba, and he says, here's all these gifts, king. And he says, well, wait a minute, where, where's Mephibosheth? And he says, oh, no, no, he, he said today he was going to be king. I don't know what that means, but, but here's all this stuff for you. It's interesting because David, later, we're going to be introduced to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is going to come to David, and he's going to say, Ziba deceived me. I wanted to come, but Ziba wouldn't let me. He stole all the, all the donkeys, and I couldn't come. I wanted to come. And so here, David doesn't know that. All David knows is, is here's Ziba. Ziba says, Mephibosheth has, has deserted you. He's going to take the king. He's going to take the throne over you. And so David, seeing what he sees, says, all I can do is, is make this judgment. You must be true. Must be what, you're, what you're saying must be true. You have all that was once Mephushes. Because you've provided this, this real act of kindness to me. Take, take all that was once Mephushes. So in that moment, David take, takes everything away from Mephibosheth and, and gives it to Ziba. And so Ziba, I would say, gets what he wants. I think that's what he wants, ultimately. So he has possession. Now, we'll come back to that. And later in 2 Samuel, we'll see how David kind of tries to right his wrong. He doesn't do it completely, but he tries to later on. But there's Ziba. And then the second person that we're introduced to is a man named Shimei. And that second person, it's not a very cordial meeting. In verses 5 through 15, this man named Shimei is a member of Saul's family also, so connected again with Saul. And he comes out and he's cursing David. 
And he, he's just following David, cursing him, throwing stones at him, throwing dust at him. In the charge of Shimei, I mean, he's just walking with David, yelling out loud, making charges that, you're a man of blood. Get out of here. God's judging you. Get out of here, David, you man of blood. God's judgment is being passed out on you because he's given the, the throne to Absalom. And so he's, he's throwing these curses. David, as you're going, you're being judged by God. Right? Curses and curses. And as he's doing so, right, as a good soldier, one of David's men begin to take offense. And he says, why should this dead dog curse the king? Right? So that, that, that's an insult of that time, I guess, a dead dog. Well, why should he be able to say something about the king? Doesn't he know who you are? This man is Abishai coming to David's aid. But instead of David saying, yeah, take him out. Take him out. Shut him up, would you? And instead, notice David's response. Verse, I'll, I'll read beginning verse 10. He says, if he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Or why are you doing what you're doing? And, and David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite seek my life? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for, for the Lord maybe has told him to. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. So he says, my own son is trying to kill me. What, why, what, what's wrong with this guy doing it? Just lead him. Just let him, let him go. Let him do it. If this is wrong, the Lord will, will look on this and repay me good for this evil. But, but as for me, I, I'm not going to stop him. And so the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. So, so the king has fled Jerusalem. And as that king was on the way out, there's a, the, the rival for the throne is entering Jerusalem, which is what we'll turn to next. But, but let me make two points of application here from, from this first section in chapter 15 and 16. And so these are two points. They're broad truths, but I think they're on display here in David's life. The first is simply trusting God in the midst of trials. So, so David, on two separate occasions here, in two instances, he responds to what's going on with, with confidence, with trust in the Lord. So in his interaction just that we saw with Shimei, he, this man is cursing him and throwing stones with him, and, God, and David recognizes may, maybe God told him to do this. And, and the implication that David makes, if, if the Lord has, who am I to tell him to stop? Again, I'm submitting to the Lord. I'm trusting the Lord. If this is what he sees as best for me, let, just let him do it. In other words, let the Lord do what seems good to him, even if it means inciting Shimei to curse me. Right? This is evidence of trusting God in the midst of trials. But the second instance, and I think the more clear example, is when David tells Abathar and Zadok to take the ark back. And he says, take it back if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to see it again. I'm going to see the ark, and I'm going to, I'm going to be back in Jerusalem. So, so I'm not worried about not seeing that ark again. But if I'm not to see the ark again, who am I to tell the Lord not to do that? Let, let the Lord do what seems good to him. So do you see David's humble trust? This is confidence in the Lord. David, he's on the run again. He's, he's fleeing the city that he himself has built. And instead of using the ark as this bargaining ship in the fights for the hearts of the men of Israel, David simply trusts the Lord. And he doesn't trust. I'm coming back. Don't worry. He says, I may, but I may not. And at the end of the day, David recognizes it's okay. His confidence isn't that he's definitely going to come back and everything's going to work out the way he wants it to. That's not his hope. Instead, David says, if the Lord wants to bring me back, he will. But if he doesn't, 
If he doesn't decide to bring me back and, and allow me to see this ark again, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. And I would simply say, this is what trusting God looks like in the midst of trials. At the end of the day, trusting God in the midst of trials means recognizing the sovereign will of the sovereign one who works all things according to his will. That's the foundation of David's confidence. Does that mean it isn't difficult as David is fleeing the city? Of course not. Does it mean that David can endure these trials with ease and a smile? No, of course not. He's weeping and he's mourning as he's going. But as he goes, he endures, as it were, the wind and the waves of the current storm because his anchor is secure in the God who is with him and who has called him. He isn't sheltered from the wind or the waves or the cold or the elements. He's not sheltered. He's, he's still going to have hard time. But he's anchored. And so he can trust the Lord. Come what may. Come what may. The second thing I see from these verses is, is the relationship between trusting God and making plans. Trusting God and making plans. And, and so this is simply to say that, that trusting God does not exclude making plans. Right? So David trusts the Lord, but that doesn't mean he says, okay. I'm going to sit here in Jerusalem and let, let Absalom come, and if the Lord wants to spare me, he's going to spare me. That's not how his trust is manifested. Instead, he says, okay, you guys, you're going to be in Jerusalem. You go back, and you've got sons, and they can run and give me. Okay, good, good. Let's have this plan. Let's have this intel network so, so that I can know what's going on. I need to know what's going on. And his planning does not mean he's not trusting. His trust is just active. It's not passive. His trust coexists with his planning. It's not one or the other. It's not either trust God or don't trust God and make your plans. No, it's trust God and do what you think you should or you're able to. And so David trusts the Lord, but he still makes plans. And, and there's a host of applications for that in our lives. But trusting God is not, does not eliminate making plans or exclude making plans. Well, let, let's move as, as we turn to, to the second half of, of chapter 16. The scene shifts, and, and these second two sections are, are, are much faster than, than the first one. But Absalom, as David leaves, Absalom enters Jerusalem. As, as he enters right there with Absalom is Ahithophel, the man that we introduced, the man that's now on Absalom's team. And in verses 15 through 19, we see the stage for an upcoming conflict being set. And so we have Absalom coming with Ahithophel in Jerusalem, and, and all of a sudden here comes Hushai. I mean, that's come from David. And after initially, so when Hushai comes, Absalom says, oh, wait, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Aren't you with your friend, your friend? Aren't you your, your friend's counselor? Right, so, so he's skeptical of Hushai and his, his loyalty. But Hushai deceives him and, and convinces him he's, he's here to serve the king. And so he's welcomed back into the circle. And so they get to Jerusalem, desolate, the, the complex, and Absalom asks Ahithophel, okay, we're here, but what do we do now? Well, what's the plan of action? Ahithophel, his plan is the, the ten women that were left behind. He tells Absalom, okay, go into King David's concubines. Now remember, David left these ten women, and, and, Abs and Ahithophel says, okay, go. Go in to those ten women. We'll set up this big tent on the roof, and all of Jerusalem is going to know what's happening in that tent. That, that this man, Absalom, the son of David, is, is publicly displaying his his grasp of the throne. He's going to take the concubines of the king. And so by going into these women, Ahithophel would be making his claim to Israel's throne, doing something that only the king is allowed to do. And so he does it bo both to send this public statement, but also his courageous act would, would energize those that, that are joining him in the coup. 
Right? So, so they'll say, oh my goodness, did you hear what he did? He really is. He's really going to overthrow David. Let's join him. And, and so this, this group mentality would, would then build because of this act. So Ahithophel knows exactly what's going to happen. And so upon hearing his advice, Absalom carries out the plan. So he sets up the tent on the same roof that his father had seen a woman bathing from. Same roof. And he publicly shames his father by going into the women. We should also note that, that this is a fulfillment of what God promised to David right, all the way back in, in chapter 11. The Lord told David, Behold, I'm going to raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I'm going to take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did what you did, David, secretly, but I'm going to do this thing before all Israel. So, so here's a fulfillment of what the Lord said. And so Ahithophel, who's, who's intending to overthrow the king, and that's his, that's his goal, his main motivator, but in his counsel, he's actually ensuring that God's judgment against David is carried out. You see how that's working? So Ahithophel says, go, do this evil thing. But as, as the readers, we know that's exactly what God was going to do to David as, as discipline for his sin. And so even when, even when evil Ahithophel was in the hands of even evil, evil Ahithophel was in the hands of the sovereign Lord as he was carrying out his actions. That, that brings us to chapter 17, the, the final section, plans to kill the king. And so as chapter 17 picks up, we see the re rebellion in full effect. So Ahithophel, having al already organized Absalom and, and going into the king's concubines, now he has a plan. Okay, we've done this. We've made our public statement. Now, now we're going to go kill the king. And so Absalom... Makes it, or, or Absalom asks Ahithophel, what's the plan? And here's Ahithophel's plan. It's quite simple. He says, okay, I'm going to choose 12,000 men, and I'm going to go after David. I'm going to come upon him, and all those people with him, they're going to see me, and they're going to flee. Then I will strike down the king. Only the king, no one else. I'm going to strike down the king, and then I'm going to bring back all your people as a bride to you. So that, that's Ahithophel's plan. So first notice, who's the hero of this plan? I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Ahithophel is going to capture David. That's part of his plan, but, but the second, this plan would almost certainly succeed. This, David's not ready for this. This is a good plan. This is why David's afraid of Ahithophel. He, he has a mind, and, and he can organize victory. So David was actually with the people, and they probably wouldn't have been ready for an attack from Ahithophel and 12,000 others. So it's probably a plan that would, would most, most certainly succeed. Which is why in verse 5, it's clearly the Lord's intervention in this situation. Because in verse 5, after hearing this plan, Absalom says, Oh, okay, so I, I hear that. Let, let's hear what Hushai has to say. So he calls Hushai in, and he says, I, I want to hear what you think. And so when Hushai comes to Absalom, notice he says, Hey, hey, Hushai, here's what Ahithophel said we should do. Right? So he, he tells him exactly what Ahithophel said. He said, What do you think? And so here... Hushai has a chance, he's presented with an opportunity to contradict Ahithophel's plan. He probably hears it and thinks, oh, that cannot happen. And so Hushai takes this opportunity. And he says, whoa, bad idea, bad idea. Don't attack now. And so thinking quickly on his feet, I'm sure, he says, now, now here's why you don't attack. Don't, don't you know the mighty men that are with your dad? They're enraged like a mother bear who's lost her cubs. You don't want to mess with them right now. You better not attack now. Plus... Plus, David isn't even going to be with them. Don't you know? He, he's an expert at life on the run. He's an expert at hiding. He's not going to be with his people. He's probably found a great hiding spot already. And so you're going to attack thinking David's there. David's not going to be there, and the mighty men are going to destroy whoever's with you. 
And whoever is with Ahithophel, then, then word is going to travel throughout all, all Israel that, that Absalom's group was attacked by the mighty men. And then those that would have possibly joined you, they're going to say, no way. That's Hushai saying, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Here is a better plan. Here's what you need to do. Gather all of Israel to you. Just have them all come to you. And then you lead them into battle. Absalom, you heard of the king. Why don't you lead them into battle? Then we're going to find David wherever he is. We're going to have all of Israel. There's not going to be any problem finding him. We'll, we'll, we'll seek, we'll search, and we'll find him, and we'll take him. He could run wherever he wants, but, but whatever city he goes to, when we have all of Israel on our side, we're, we'll just destroy that city until we find David. We'll overturn every rock until we find where he's hiding. And so that's Hushai's plan. And, and again, notice who gets the glory according to this plan. Absalom, king, don't you want to lead? Don't, don't you want to sit on your father's throne? Well, here's a plan that leads to that. And so Absalom, after hearing Hushai's counsel, he says, oh, actually, that does sound better. That, that does sound like a good idea. So, so forget what Ahithophel said. Let, let's do this. And in, at the end of verse 14, notice this comment that's made a commentary on what's just happened. We're told that Absalom took Hushai's counsel, not because he thought it was a good thing, but fundamentally because the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. So the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, and so Absalom takes the advice of Hushai so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So the Lord, again, is, is over all of this. In other words, although Ahithophel's counsel is much better, Absalom takes Hushai's advice because the Lord ordained to defeat Ahithophel's good counsel. As the rest of the chapter plays out, Hushai conveys to, to Zadok and Abathar what's going to happen, and they in turn, they, they got their message, they're going to go run and tell, tell uh, David and, and his group, and so they tell this female servant, right, so it's all going to go according to plan. Actually, one of, one of Absalom's servants sees this girl talking to the sons, and he says, well, something's not right about that, so goes and tells Absalom, so Absalom sends men to, and, and they're, they're, almost, they're almost captured, but there's this unnamed couple that hides them, and so, so Absalom's men come, and they say, hey, where are those two guys? Where's Jonathan and Ahimaaz? And they say, well, you don't know. So they leave, and then they, after they're gone, they're, they're retrieved from the well, and they send David the news of what's going to happen. They say, here's Ahithophel's plan. You've got to act. We don't know what he's going to do, but, but this is what Ahithophel said. And so David and the men who are with them, right after been traveling a long time, they, they wouldn't want anything more than just to rest. But when that news comes, they say, okay, up. We've got to keep going. And so they have this midnight exodus and they travel all the way across the Jordan with all of them crossing by daybreak. So there's a note about Ahithophel. Right? He, he goes and ends his life when he sees that he's out. Right? A, a sad, tragic story, much similar to Judas in the New Testament. A lot of people draw connections there. But as chapter 17 ends, David and Absalom both have crossed the Jordan. So David's in the city of Man- Mahanaim and Absalom is in the land of Gilead. And so they're both there. They're getting closer and closer. And, and Lord willing, next, next week, as we see chapter 18, as we turn, we'll, we'll see the stage set and we'll see battle take place between David and his son. But, but here as we close, here, here's the final application. It's brief, uh, but I, I think it's all over this, 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 this passage, these, these chapters. And that's simply this. God, God is in control. God is in control. I think this, story runs, this theme runs throughout this entire story of Samuel, but especially here. When David is being sought out by his son Absalom, we can't miss the sovereign role of the Lord in protecting David. He's protecting him. He's thwarting Absalom's plan. The Lord is acting here. He's spoken and made promises concerning David. David was the Lord's anointed, and David was going to rule and reign until the Lord decided that his time was over. 
right? No scheme of man was ever going to end David's rule, not even a scam of, scam of Absalom, who has the best advisor in all the land, right? The Lord will not let it happen. And so the application is simply this. God is in control. God is in control. When, when you, Christian, have nothing else to hang on to, let this be enough. God is in control in the midst of suffering, or in David's case, in the midst of discipline, consequences for your sin. When it seems like everything is out of control, let this be the anchor for you. God is in control. And what's more, the one Christian who is in control is the one who's made promises concerning all of those who have come to him through Jesus Christ. And so he's your father who cares for you and knows what you need and is working all things according to his will and and is working all things to your good, for your good. And so for the Christian, God's sovereign rule is and must be, God's sovereign rule is and must be a constant source of comfort. Christian, don't be afraid. Whatever you're facing, God is in control. God is in control. You don't have to be afraid. Now, I don't pretend to believe that, that this truth makes it easier or less scary or less painful. I don't pretend to believe that. Your situation is probably much harder, scarier, difficult than anything that I've experienced. And I'm not saying, oh, just believe God is in control and it's going to fix it. I'm not saying that. But I do say, and I do believe that the sovereignty of God provides you with a foundation upon which you can place your trust no matter what you're facing. God is in control. He is a rock and a refuge for you. And so let us, like David, look to him and trust him. He is worthy of our trust. Let me pray as we close.